Bibles now, if you'd please open them to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. One thing that I think we've discovered as we've studied the book of Nehemiah is that the devil is just totally relentless. The devil never gives up. It doesn't make a difference how long that you live. You'll never reach a point in your life where you're immune to the attacks of the devil. But we also found out throughout our study of Nehemiah that every time the devil sets up an attack, the Lord has a counterattack. And we always know that the one who's on our side is greater than those who are on the other side. Our Lord's greater than Satan. And the New Testament puts that principle very clearly. It says, But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And back in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah stated the same principle in a little different way. He said, Our God shall fight for us. And when he said, Our God shall fight for us, that was paramount to saying that the victory is ours. The victory is already assured. Well, in the verses that we're going to study tonight, the diligence and the vigilance, the, the faithfulness and the watchfulness, the prayers and the watchings, Nehemiah and these people played huge dividends because Nehemiah was able to complete the wall, and the people, with the people's help, of course, able to complete the wall in a phenomenal period of only 52 days. Those walls had been broken down for 150 years. Numerous attempts had been made to rebuild them, but it took a man of integrity, a man of faithfulness, like Brother Dalton just sang about, a man who stood for the Lord to actually rebuild the wall. Now, in this evening's message, I'd like to speak about a job well done. And I'd like us to uh, particularly notice that the completing of the wall didn't mean that Nehemiah's work was finished. There was still work to be done. Now, our lesson tonight covers the last part of the sixth chapter and also the entire seventh chapter. And when you get into the seventh chapter, you find out that there is a genealogy there. How many of you have read genealogies in the Bible? How many of you can pronounce all the names when you come to them? I can't either, so I'm not going to read all the names, but we're going to make a point from that genealogy tonight as we come to that particular part. I'd like you to stand with me now as we read God's Word. We're going to read just a few verses from chapter 6, and this will get us into the message tonight. I'd like you to look at verse number 15, if you would. Nehemiah 6, verse number 15. So the wall was finished in in the twenty and fifth day of the month Elul in fifty and two days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the daughter of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me and uttered my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters unto me to put me in fear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Help us to learn something from this great book of Nehemiah. Lord, help us that we might learn faithfulness to depend upon you and know that our help comes from you and to surely understand that our God will fight for us. And that's why we have the victory. Blessed in this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 15 says once again, So the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month Elul in fifty and two days. Now you can well imagine that when the walls of Jerusalem were finally finished, that there was a great deal of exuberance. 
There was celebration among the people of God that they were able to complete such an astounding feat. It was only just nine months before this that Nehemiah was back in Persia. He was 1,500 miles from Jerusalem, and he heard the news that the walls of Jerusalem were still broken down. And as soon as Nehemiah heard that word, he immediately went into a sustained period of prayer where for four months he prayed that the God would would work in the heart of the king and the time would be right that he'd be able to go and speak to the king and the king would let him go to Jerusalem and build the city walls. Now this is a very remarkable thing because Nehemiah spent four months praying for a job that took two and a half months to complete. That ought to tell us the value of praying. And sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to do God's work and try to do God's will, and we haven't put in the prayer time that's necessary. But Nehemiah's prayer time of four months shortened the building of the wall. It prepared God's people for the work that they were to do. And it teaches us that we can't shorten up the prayer time if we expect God to bless us. Now, this was an awesome workforce that Nehemiah was involved with. I mean, here are people who know nothing about building a wall, and they're not people who spent very much time dilly-dallying around and wasting time because to complete the wall in 52 days with that workforce was an awesome feat. Now, first of all tonight, I want to draw your attention to this, Nehemiah's amazing accomplishment. And I call this Nehemiah's accomplishment, but really we can say that this is the accomplishment of all the people because Nehemiah couldn't have built that wall alone. Back in chapter 4 again, he said that this was completed because the people had a mind to work. And so everyone concerned in the building of the wall was aware of how God had prospered them and they knew that they would never be prosperous. They'd never be able to build the wall unless they were diligent to very carefully do exactly what God said to do. And, of course, that's what we have to do as well. We can't accomplish God's task as a church unless we're diligent about the work that we do and we follow God's directions explicitly. So when these people stuck to the work, when they endured all the ridicule and the mockery of the enemies, when the enemy said, you don't have what it takes to to complete this wall, and yet they stood for the Lord, they stood in there and they did the work, The wall was completed, and when it was, that left an impression upon the people who were around them. I want you to notice this, that the impression that it left was that the enemy perceived God's power. Notice verse number 16 again, if you would, please. And it came to pass that when all of our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Now, we notice here in this verse that those people that surrounded the Jews were all heathens. They weren't believers in Jehovah God. In fact, they were believers in a multiplicity of gods. And their gods had never done for them what they saw Jehovah God do for for Israel. Again, 52 days completing the wall and doing it with a workforce that knows nothing at all about wall building... It's an impossible task. And so as the wall was completed, the only thing that those people could do was stand back and their conclusion is this is the work of Jehovah God. Now, Matthew Henry has an interesting note on this because he says that the people possibly were cast down in their own eyes, as the scripture says here, because they had tried to do the same thing that Nehemiah did. They had also petitioned the king of Persia that they might rebuild the walls of their city but they hadn't been able to accomplish it. The king wouldn't let them do it. 
And we've already talked about how that a fortified Jerusalem was not in the best interest of the king. Making Jerusalem an outpost where there could be rebellion again, that wasn't in the best interest of the king. And Matthew Henry suggests that these people in Samaria had also wanted to rebuild the walls of their city, but the king wouldn't let them. And so this was a tribute to God and God's working in the king's heart. For what do we find the scriptures telling us? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And so these people could only do one thing. They stood back and they said, this has to be the work of their God. Now, one thing that we really need to understand, lost people need to understand, people who refuse to believe in God, they need to know that they are as much controlled by God as any saved person is. God has every person in his hand and in his control. Now, the difference between saved people and lost people is that we delight to do the will of God. At least we should delight to do it. Lost people don't care anything at all about doing God's will. But when God sets his will down and he says, this will be done... It will be done, and there won't be anybody who can stand against the Lord. Now, it would have been much better for the Jews' enemies to have recognized very early on what they came to know right here, that this work was of God. I mean, if they had just admitted that in the very beginning, everybody would have been a lot better off. Every attack that they brought against Nehemiah was brought, was uh, countered with another attack. And, and so every time that they were defeated, all they could say, it's their God. There's no other conclusion. It's their God. Wouldn't Pharaoh have been better off if he had recognized when Noah, uh, Noah, not Noah, but Moses, when Moses first came in to see him, if he had just recognized there is a God behind this man, wouldn't that have saved Pharaoh a lot of trouble? If Pharaoh had just admitted that God was at work, that would have saved a whole lot of lives on the Passover night. A lot of children wouldn't have died. A lot of firstborn of the people in Egypt would not have died. Animals wouldn't have died if they had just recognized that it's their God. Now, friends, I think that America will someday have to come to the realization that what God has done here is our God that does it. And we are are so quick to try to get God out of our society that we could save a whole lot of grief if we would just come to the conclusion that America is great because of Jehovah God. America is great because of what God has done. Now, today we're embroiled in religious war where we have threats of terrorism within our own borders on a daily basis. And yet, while all that's going on, our government scorns all influence of God. And so someday, I think that we're going to look back and we're going to say, why didn't we just recognize that we are what we are by the grace of God and God has done it all? Well, the Jews' enemies discovered too late And they found out what Nehemiah knew all along. And I want you to notice that. What did Nehemiah know? Well, he knew that the credit for completion was God. Everything that was done here belonged to God. God did it all. Now, if there was ever a time that Nehemiah could have stepped back and he could have contemplated his work and saw the success of that wall, if there was ever a time when he could have said, this is my doing, And he could have stuck his thumbs in his vest and said, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. Here was a time that Nehemiah could do it. But who's keeping the record? Well, actually, Nehemiah is the one who wrote this book. And instead of getting credit to himself, he says, they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. He could have said, well, they perceived that I was too crafty. I was just too great of a leader. There's no way that I could fail because I'm just it. And he could have said, I'm the man. 
Nehemiah is the man. I get things done. But that's not what Nehemiah did. Instead, he gave all the credit for this work to the Lord. This reminds me of, sadly, about what happens many times in churches today among many spiritual leaders because instead of drawing attention to God, they prefer to draw attention to themselves. Instead of talking about the great God and what God has done, they want to show everybody what big shots they are. And they want people to look at them and applaud them for what they've done. This year, I want to encourage all of our men, as many as you possibly can, to go to the Master's Men Conference in Fresno. I think it's a good thing for us to do. It's good for us to get charged up. It's good for us to enjoy the fellowship of our men and to meet some other people. But I'll tell you that the conference down there is not without its faults. Last year, every man that I spoke to that went with our group was completely turned off by one of the speakers that we had. And this particular speaker proved to be a sharp contrast to the man who spoke before him. Those of you men who went with us, you may remember the evangelist John Bishop. And John Bishop is a very humble man. And I think that we were all uh, just, just amazed at the accomplishments that John Bishop has made in his life. Here's a man that was a Baptist preacher, and he was afflicted with a septic meningitis. And that caused him to lose all of his motor skills. He lost his ability to speak. He had to learn to walk and talk all over again. He had to learn the Word of God all over again. He had to learn how to preach all over again. And yet, despite everything that he went through... When John Bishop got going again, when he got to the place that he could preach, and he still struggles with that, but he named his ministry, the ministry that he works in, God is so good ministries. He never complained about what had happened. Getting sick and all that he went through, he just gave God the glory. Now that was in sharp contrast to a man who got up and spoke after him because here was a man who thought it was better that he should tout his own accomplishments. And he thought that it was better that he would build himself up rather than he would talk about his God. And as I said to a man among the group that I, of our men that I talked with, our reaction to that is one of disgust because we don't want to give man the glory. We don't like a pompous attitude that says, look what I do, look who I am. And folks, that attitude's far too prevalent among many ministries today. Nehemiah had every opportunity to stand back and say, look what I've done. But instead, he said, this work was wrought of our God. But now there's something peculiar that happens in the end of chapter 6. Nehemiah was God's man, but, but strangely enough, the people started giving credit to the enemy. And they started following the enemy. Now look at verse number 17. It says, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me, and uttered my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. Do you remember who Tobiah is? Do you remember that name? Tobiah was an enemy of God's people. Tobiah was one of these men who stood and mocked the building of the wall. You may remember that he said this back in the fourth chapter, verse 3. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. And so he stood out there and he ridiculed God's people as they built that wall. And he was one of those who said, You don't have what it takes to finish this wall. There's no strength in you. You can't do it. 
And yet there were people among those in Judah who entered into a league with Tobiah. They exchanged letters between themselves and they began to praise Tobiah for the good works that he had done. And so what actually happens here that Tobiah, who is an enemy of God's people, becomes a rival leader of Nehemiah. And remember, he's one of the enemy. Now, my next point is actually a quote from Matthew Henry because Henry said, a sinful love leads to a sinful league. Here's the problem. Tobiah was the son-in-law of Shechaniah. Shechaniah was the, was the father of one of the main leaders of the wall. In fact, his son Shemaiah was the one who built the most important gate in Jerusalem, and that was the east gate. Not only that, but Tobiah's son was married to the daughter of Meshulam, and Meshulam was the builder of the old gate. I don't know if you remember what the old gate represents, but it actually rep- represents the faithfulness of God to his people. So what you have here is a system of intermarriage between God's people and heathens. And what those intermarriages did was to cause mixed loyalties. And so the man of God is being undermined by people who have allegiances to those who have been married to the heathen people that were surrounding them. Now what happened here is there is a mixed families, mixed families, and they become more dedicated to their in-laws and more dedicated to their families than they are to God himself. Now, that's a problem. And in churches today, we have a problem like that. And that's because many of the children of believers have married unbelievers. And many times what happens is that the loyalty gets split. And it gets split off to where the loyalty is no longer to the church and to God's work, but the loyalty comes to that unbeliever. Friend, I'll tell you, there's a red flag that needs to go up when your children begin to date unbelievers. Don't let them do that. Almost invariably, the family is undermined and eventually the church will be undermined as well. Marriages with unbelievers don't usually work well because they hurt the spirituality of the believer. So it's almost incredible that after this amazing accomplishment of building this wall, only 52 days, and yet the people are praising the enemy rather than thanking Nehemiah and and telling him what a good job that he did and the fine skills of leadership that he had and enabled them to help build that wall. So Matthew Henry said it very well. He said, a sinful love leads to a sinful league. Now that takes us to chapter 7. And we see Nehemiah's insistence that he's not going to sit back on his laurels. The wall is built, but that doesn't mean the work is done. Uh, The enemy hasn't stopped. The enemy's still out there, and so Nehemiah can't relax. So now he goes on to the next thing. He goes on to something else. And so next we see Nehemiah's plan for protection. And the plan for protection is in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch and every one to be set over against his house. Now, what could have happened with the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah could have ended this whole thing with chapter 6. That could have been the end of the book. Nehemiah and all the people could have stood back and admired the wall that they'd just completed and said, that's all that we need to do. That work is done. And so we can sit down and rest. 
But here's a book that goes on because there are other challenges to be met. There are other things to be done. And God's people can't stop with one great success. There are more that have to be done. There's more things that have to be done. So the rest of the book of Nehemiah is actually filled with more success as Nehemiah presses on to do God's work. Now the walls are built, but there's still a lot to do in the city. So what Nehemiah does next is to change his focus away from building the walls. And now he changes to making the city habitable again. And he's charged with the responsibility of giving the city a good government. And so that's the next thing that he does. Well, how does he do that? Well, first, the first order of business is to appoint rulers with competence. So Nehemiah is the governor. He's appointed by King Artaxerxes to, to rule over the province of Judah. And so he has the authority to delegate to others in order to set up a city government. So the first thing that Nehemiah did was to set up the porters for the city. Now, the porters are actually the men who are in charge of the gates. And these men have a responsibility of 24 hours round the clock watching who goes in and out of the city. Even when the gates are shut at night, those porters are there because they're up on top peering over the wall and they're looking to see what's going on on the outside. Now, J. Vernon McGee has a very interesting comment about this because he uses these scriptures to teach us a lesson. And he says that what we really need to learn about this is a warning for us to watch who goes in and out of the church. Now, many people think that the main tenet of Christianity is religious tolerance. That what we really ought to do is we ought to accept people no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter what their moral character is. We just bring them into church and we're all one big happy family. Well, some say they'll go maybe back up on that a little bit and they'll say something like, well, it's all right for us to discriminate about doctrine. I mean, we need to get people in the church who agree with us doctrinally, but let's not be too concerned about the moral outlook of people. I mean, let's don't look at their lives too much and see what kind of people that they really are. If your doctrine is okay, then you're okay with us. But neither of those views is right according to the scriptures. First of all, we can't accept people simply because they're people. Doctrine does matter. I mentioned this on Wednesday night, and a couple of times I've talked about this, but the other day I received a letter in the mail from a lady who wanted to give me my own personal copy of a publication that was put out by the Watchtower Society. And with that, she included some information, and she said, now, if any of your people would like to ask questions about this because there are lots of folks in your neighborhood that have had these things put on their doors. And so if they have questions about it, they can call me. And so she included her number with that information. And I looked at what she wrote me and I thought, how naive and spiritually inept does she think that we are right here? I mean, are we going to promote somebody who doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ? I mean, are we going to make that acceptable among our people? Are we going to make it acceptable for people to come in here who don't believe in the substitutionary work of Jesus and people who don't believe that a person is saved by grace through faith alone? We're not going to do that. We'll never do that. Friends, here's what you need to do with the Jehovah Witnesses. Gladly take their publications and tear it up before their eyes. And you might think, well, that's a harsh thing to do, but it's garbage. Don't let that stuff fall into somebody else's hands. Tear that stuff up and don't encourage those people in their work. Read the book of 2 John and see what John has to say about that or 3 John. I, I can't remember the scripture right of hand. 
But he talks about don't even bid them Godspeed. I mean, don't encourage them in what they're doing. But then there are also times that we can't accept people even if their doctrine is right. Sometimes morality is the issue. Now, some people think that morality is only a thing that Roman Catholics have to deal with, that that's, that's one of their problems. Of course, they, they do have a huge problems with priest and pedophilia and all of those things. But we needn't think that Roman Catholics are the only ones who have moral issues to deal with. There are also problems right in our Baptist churches. There are problems among fundamental Baptist ministries. Did you know that one of the largest fundamental ministries in America was run by a man who had moral problems? Now, he was a preacher, and his ministry also turned a blind eye to his son who had adulterous affairs in the church. And then they let that man go into other churches and become ministers in those churches with their approval without even telling the people what he was involved in. Now, there's a man with moral problems. And do you understand also that there are ministries today that have made it their their work to keep alive that man's ministry. He's dead now, but they're keeping alive the memory of that man who was a moral failure. I mean, he's their hero. But you know what Paul tells us? He says, don't keep company with people if they have the wrong doctrine. And we're warned about that. But he also says, don't keep company with people who have moral problems. Read the book of 1 Corinthians and you'll find that to be true. Paul said, get rid of the moral problems in the church. Exclude those people from the church when you find that out. So the guards, the, the, the porters, they were there to protect the gate, uh, gates of the city and to watch who went in and out and make sure there are no subversives who enter here. But we also notice that Nehemiah chose two men, Hanani and Hananiah, to rule the city. Many people think that Hanani was like the city mayor and Hananiah was like the chief of police. He was in charge of the, of the security for the city. But the most important thing that I want you to note here about this is the qualification that's given for these men. Because it tells us here in the last part of verse 2, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. What is the most important qualification to do God's work? Faithfulness. You know, the Bible does not say that in order for you to do God's work that you have to be seminary educated. It doesn't say anything like that. It requires faithfulness. Now, there are many people who want to take the super educated and they want to make them the heads of ministries. But, you know, you can educate somebody out the kazoo and, and they not, may not be a spiritual person or a faithful person. Then there are churches that want to take the wealthy people and put them on the boards and let them control things in that way. But, you know, I've never seen a wealthy person who wasn't faithful that ever did a church very much good. It just doesn't work that way. Wealthy people who aren't faithful usually try to control the church, and they do it through their money. So Nehemiah is looking for faithful men, and that's what we need when we appoint leaders for ministry. So Nehemiah appointed rulers with confidence. Now, he also knew this, that he was to apply rules of caution. Now, the rules of caution that I'm speaking about is with the opening and closing of the gates. Nehemiah commanded that the gates of the city would remain closed until the sun was up and hot. Now, normally what they would do is open the gates at sunrise or at least uh, very early in the morning. But Nehemiah says, I don't want you to do that. And the reason that he didn't was he wanted them to be very careful. He wanted everybody to be on their toes. Everybody keep watch here and see again who's coming in and out of the city. Now, what does that teach us? Well... 
I think I have to go back to that point I made just a moment ago. Sometimes we're too quick to open up the gates of the church. You know the best way to build a church? The best way is to preach the Word of God in its entirety and preach the Word of God in its unpopularity. And you let the chips fall where they may. You just preach the Word of God. But what some churches would like to do, they want to pull out all the stops and they go into their promotional gimmicks in order to get people to come into the church. And so they promise pies for attendance. They promise that if you're the 10th person in, you get a door prize. Some of them have clowns. I've seen some who tape dollar bills under bus seats to get people to come. There's weightlifters for Jesus, karate expositions for Jesus, comedians, and they fill the church up. Of course they do. They're entertaining people. They can fill the church up. My question is, what happened to God's Word? What happened to that in preaching God's Word to fill the church up? Now, I'm sorry, folks, but if you come to Briam Baptist and you need entertainment and you need more incentives to come to church here, you'll have to look elsewhere. We're not into that. The service times are times for the book. They're times to study God's Word. If you expect to hear anything other than the Bible when you come to this church, you're in the wrong place. Now, God adds to the church when the Word is preached, and the converts that are added that way are always of the highest quality. Now, that brings me to the third point this evening, and that's Nehemiah's roll call of the righteous. Verse number 4 says, Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. Now, the problem with the city is is there's relatively few people to inhabit it. Originally, Jerusalem was a very large city, but by the time that we're reading now, because of the captivity, the numbers of people had been reduced to about around 42,000 people. So there aren't enough people to inhabit the city to protect it. And then on top of that, there aren't houses there. There aren't places to live. And for the people who are there, nor for people who would want to return to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah sets out to number the people. And what he does is he wants to find out exactly who is who. Who are these people that are among the children of Israel? What is their ancestry? Are they people who can be counted among the pure stock of Israel? And so what follows there is a genealogy of the people. And it gives us all the particular divisions that these people were divided into. Now, that's a good study. And you might want to look at that sometime to see where all of these people came from. I'm not going to go into that tonight. But there are many divisions. There are singers and porters and Levites and priests and on and on. But what I want to point out to you tonight is this. They were few, but they were faithful. This is the same list that we find in the book of Ezra. And we could call this the roll call of the righteous or the roll call of the faithful. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have a roll call of faithful people. And that's what we have right here. These are people who had been led away into captivity, but they're people who still love their homeland. They're people who still love the Lord, and they had a desire to return to Jerusalem. Now, that wasn't the case with all of the Jews. Over the years that Israel was in captivity, many of the people had been assimilated into other cultures. They enjoyed a different lifestyle, and many of them weren't too keen on returning to Israel because there was a lot of work to be done. And so there were people who weren't faithful among the people of Israel, and they didn't return to help out with the rebuilding of the city. But here is another very remarkable thing about Nehemiah. Remember the position that Nehemiah has? He's the cupbearer. That means he has a very prominent position. 
Almost daily, he's in the presence of the king. He was an important man in Persia. And yet, Nehemiah decided that he was going to give up all of that, give up his position, give up his prestige, you might say, even give up his wealth to come to Jerusalem. Now, during the time that Nehemiah was there, we learned that he never took any money from the people. He never took any tax money from them. He never took anything for his own support. But instead, he supported people. He supported the government himself. So he forsook all of his wealth because he wanted to follow the Lord and and begin to worship God again or, or to continue to worship God in Jerusalem. Now, why did the people in Jerusalem return originally? Well, we notice that the first person in the list, if you get a chance to read it, is a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel returned to Israel, returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And why would he want to rebuild the temple? Because that's a signal that the people are returning to the worship of God. And so Zerubbabel is first in that list. The people came back to Jerusalem uh, originally for the intention of worshiping their God again. You know, sometimes we think that we're so alone. I mean, we're just a small church. There's not many of us. And so we can't do great things for God. But if you look at the list of people here and the job that they had to do, they rebuilt that temple. And here these people rebuild the city walls. And that tells us that God can take people who are faithful but few and God can accomplish his work. And God can do that right here in Berean Baptist Church. God never intended that we would be in the majority of people in the world. In fact, when God chose Israel, Moses told them in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, because ye were the fewest of all people. And then Jesus said in the New Testament in Matthew, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So we could never expect that as the people of God, we're going to be in the majority. And yet God takes the few, and God takes the faithful, and he accomplishes everything that he wants to do in this world. You need to understand, we are the instruments of God. We are what God uses to see that his work gets done. And unless we remain faithful, God's work won't be done. And so that's an imperative for us. Be faithful, just like the song said. Be faithful to the Lord. So they're faithful people. But I want you to notice another fine characteristic about them. And that is, they were gracious in giving. What we have in the end of the seventh chapter is actually a giving record. Now, that ought to tell us something. Nehemiah wrote down the giving. He had a record of the giving. What does it tell us? Well, you should be aware of this, that God also has a record of our giving. Now, you might think that Bill Burge and John Bunn, they're the only ones around who have a record of the giving. But you can be sure of this, God has a record of all the giving. He knows how much that you give as compared to how much income that you have. Now, how does he know that? Well, he's the, like, here on the list of IRS agents. (laughs) He's seen your tax return. And he knows exactly how much money you've made. No one in the church knows that information. I, I don't have that information. And the whole thing about this is, it's not whether a person gives $10,000, and it's not whether a person gives $5,000 a year to church. That's not the important thing. The important part is, is it what God requires? Now, there's only one proportion of giving that we've been given in the Scriptures, and that's the tithe. And a tithe, the word actually means 10%. 
And so as Christians, we are to give 10% of our income to the Lord. Now, I was reading something the other night. This wasn't a part of my message, but uh, the person made a very good point that nowhere in the Scriptures does it ever tell us that 10% was the stopping point for our giving. And if you only give 10%, you really haven't done all that's required because everywhere in the Scripture where it talks about the giving and the 10%, there's also an offering that goes on top of that. Now, the tithe itself is not your offering. That already belongs to God. Of course, it all belongs to God. But 10% is what required, and your offering goes on top of that. Now, some people will say this. Well, well, I don't believe in the tithe. Tithe is Old Testament. I I don't believe in that. I believe in grace giving. And I believe in grace giving, too. And if your grace giving requires you to give less than 10%, you don't have very much grace. If you look at this in the... In the, in, the, in, the, in the Bible here, we find out that New Testament requirements are always greater than Old Testament requirements. Love is greater in the New Testament, the love that we show for one another. Forgiveness is greater in the New Testament. Giving is greater in the New Testament. There's much more required of us. So the demands are greater. And so if you ever say, well, I don't want to live under Old Testament law... Take a look at what the New Testament requires of you, and you'll find out it's a whole lot more. Well, I want to close this evening by relating to you a New Testament incident. There's a person in the New Testament who actually isn't even named, and yet this person uh, gives us just a, a great example of what it means to give to God. And the Lord Jesus himself took note of this person's giving. I want you to turn just a minute, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. Jesus was sitting next to the temple, and he was watching people as they came by, and they gave their offerings. And there was a particular woman who came to the temple on this day who gave her offering, and Jesus took note of her. In Mark chapter 12, verse number 41, it says, And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast into their abundance. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. You ever done this? Have you ever sat down to make out your check to the church? And the first thing that you do is calculate how much you have left over. How much is left? I would say that all of us have done that sometime or another. We know that we need to give, and yet we sit down and we calculate how much is going to be left after the giving. Well, here's Jesus, and he's watching people put their money into the treasury. And there were many rich people who came, and I'm sure as Jesus watched them, that there were folks who came in with their gold coins, and they dropped them into the box, and they kind of threw them perhaps to where they rattled around. And they'd look around and say, well, who saw me put what I put into the treasury? And then there's this lady who comes in, a very poor lady, and she only has two little pennies. I mean, not very much at all. And she quietly drops those coins into the box. Nobody saw her. Nobody but Jesus. Nobody even noticed that the woman was there but Jesus. And so he called the disciples to him, and he said, here is a woman who put in everything that she had. Now, those pennies didn't represent 10% of her income. 
They didn't represent 50% of what she had. They represented 100% of all that she had. And even though it was just two tiny pennies, it was all she had. And she gave that to the Lord. And Jesus told the disciples that she had given more than all of those people who out of their riches and their abundance had put money into the treasury of the temple. Now that tells us something, folks. Don't get scared because if you're sitting there thinking, well, what this, what this means is God wants me to put 100% of my paycheck into the offering. Please don't faint dead away before I'm finished with the sermon. That's not what God requires. He hasn't told you to bring your paycheck and sign it over to the church. But the point of the matter is, as Jesus talks about this lady, is are you willing to do that if God were to ask you? He hasn't asked that in particular, but if God said, I need it all, would you be willing to give it all? Now, here is a woman who gave all, and she walked away not knowing where those next pennies would come from. But I think that she never had to want because I think the Lord took care of her. And that's what God does when we give to him. When we're willing to give, he'll always take care of us. So here we see, really, the exact character of Nehemiah and the people that he worked with. 52 days building the wall, it was phenomenal, it was amazing, but they were able to accomplish it. And we see from this that our work never stops. The question for us is, are we up to that task? Are we up to whatever God asks us to do? And when we come down to the end of our lives, will we hear those words from Jesus? That's a job well done. And I'm telling you that if we don't dedicate our whole selves to Jesus Christ, we won't hear those words job well done. And I hope that we do, though. I really do hope that the members of Berean Baptist Church, every one of us, when we step through those pearly gates, you know, the choir sang it about a minute ago, kind of a raucous tune there about getting through the pearly gates, and maybe we don't agree with all the theology that might possibly be in that song. But here, you need to understand this. When you step through the gates, will God say to you, it's a job well done. And that's what we ought to be concerned about, every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a great opportunity that we have to be in your house tonight. Lord, help us to learn a great lesson here that Nehemiah teaches us. The work is never done. We can't stop. We can't sit down. We can't rest. We have to keep on working. There's much work to do. And we know, Lord, that the work can be done when you're on our side. We can't do it by ourselves. I ask you, Lord, to help all of our people to be faithful. May we dedicate ourselves to you, whether that means time or whether it means money, whether it means whatever talents that you've given us to dedicate it. Lord, just help us to do that. Help us to give all, surrender all to you. And Lord, you'll use us in your service. Bless in this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's please.